2: In August 1975, Governor Jerry Brown sat down with KQED for an interview near the end of the legislative year.
0: From the moment Edmund G. Brown Jr. stepped to the podium of the California Assembly on January the 6th and gave the shortest inaugural speech in the state's history.
2: It was the kind of interview we've done dozens of times over the decades with governors, usually a chance for them to brag about the bills they've signed, that kind of thing. But after eight months in office, Brown wanted to make a different point. I don't think
3: government ought to be the answer to everything. If if it is, we're not going to have a free country anymore.
2: Brown saw the state government as a massive machine just chugging along. There were real limits to what it could solve, and even further limits on how a governor could move the needle.
3: I'd like to know what it is. I'm sitting up here and I'm available to people. I haven't seen too many good suggestions come my way.
2: Forty-five years and four terms later, Brown sat down with KQED for a long series of interviews, chewing over his entire life in and out of politics. And he still wants us to understand the limits of what one governor can do. You know, when you become
3: governor, it's like coming into a movie halfway through. There's staffers in the legislature, there's people in the various departments.
2: Brown says it's not the chief executive who largely keeps the gears of government moving. In reality,
3: all this is being done in the bowels of the bureaucracy by what I call the gnomes,
2: also the staff, and they're doing it. Jerry Brown, at age 36, was the youngest governor of California in more than 100 years. So, given his limited estimation of the office's power, here's how Brown approached the job.
3: What can we get by the fact that I'm governor. If I wasn't governor and things would happen anyway, okay, that'll be done anyways. So they don't need me. What
2: I need to do is what wouldn't happen but for me. But for me, that was Brown's guiding principle as he took office in 1975. What could he get done that others wouldn't think of or do what it took to get it over the goal line? Along the way, his narrow focus, along with very unconventional choices on where to live and how to get around, created an iconic image of Jerry Brown, a California original, and it also led to historic achievements, while also ruffling more than a few feathers along the way. And eventually, when the limits of the governor's office felt too constraining, Brown took a leap onto the national stage. From KQED Public Radio, this is the political mind of Jerry Brown.
3: I have a political mind. How clearly do you see? How how good is your eye? get the the ins out and to get the outs ins, what wouldn't happen but for me, but for for me, I reserve the right to think for myself, the right to think for myself.
4: while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.
2: You're listening to The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I'm Scott Schaefer, KQED Politics Editor. Jerry Brown entered the governor's office in January of 1975, acknowledging the limits of the office.
3: I was looking for things that would not have happened but for my being there. But what were those? I had to to figure out what those were. They weren't self-evident. You don't just go around and have a whole pocket full of ideas about what the state of California should be doing.
2: For starters, Brown knew that the governor had a lot of power to shape and broadcast a defining image. It's a lesson he learned from the guy who was governor just before him, Ronald Reagan. The Hollywood actor-turned-politician knocked Jerry Brown's father, Pat Brown, out of the governor's office in 1966. As we heard in the last episode, Jerry Brown used Reagan as a kind of model by running for governor as an outsider. Now, like Reagan, Brown used the governor's office as a stage to project a unique image.
3: Reagan said that he couldn't imagine running for president by anyone who had not first been an actor. And I think that speaks to the issue of being able to communicate to a broad audience.
2: So politics is part performance?
3: Part performance? Uh, So is journalism.
2: So is being a professor. Performance is built into existence. Following a governor who, while popular, was seen as enjoying the trappings of office in Sacramento, Brown set out to create a different image.
3: I was very aware of the skepticism and disdain for politicians, and I didn't want to feed that.
2: One of his first moves as governor, and one that would come to define his image as frugal and just plain different from other politicians, was to ditch the governor's limousine.
3: The uh, credibility of government was low, and I didn't want to project the arrogance of power. And a big limousine with one guy in the back seems excessive to me. It, just the iconography is,
2: is not good. What Brown ended up with was a blue Plymouth.
1: He sold Ronald Reagan's Cadillac limousine and uses a 74 Plymouth.
2: I
3: said, just take whatever car. I didn't know if it was going to be blue. I didn't pick the blue car. Just pick whatever car is in the carpool.
2: Brown also refused to live in the governor's mansion Reagan had built out in an upscale, leafy suburb of Sacramento.
3: To furnish it and operate it over four years would be millions of dollars. So that wasn't within the spirit of things. So there was really no choice.
2: An apartment made sense. The Spartan apartment, the blue Plymouth. Message I'm not your typical politician. Now, the average Californian probably won't notice a bill or an executive order signed by a governor, but these symbols of austerity, well, they broke through.
0: He rejects ceremonial and conventional behavior expected from governmental leaders. He gives few speeches. He sends back all the perks
1: and gifts that pour into a governor's office even the lifetime pass to Disneyland that
2: goes with the job. So to what extent was it just, that's you, that's who you were versus, you know, being, it sounds like you were somewhat aware. I mean, you couldn't No,
3: What do you mean unaware? I've been running for governor four times. I'm unaware of the consequences of political gestures and moves. Well, to state that proposition is to refute it.
2: No, I said you weren't, but I think I I was going to say you weren't weren't unaware. It was a double
3: negative. Well, you were implying that this was unusual to be aware that most politicians run around totally unaware of the consequences and what people are thinking, right? Wrong. Because that's another kind. maybe in your business, you're not aware, but I doubt that. So I think that's a
2: silly question. In that exchange, you hear a quality of Jerry Brown's that anyone who spent much time with him recognizes. He questions everything. Never met a good argument he didn't warm up to. Chalk it up to his Jesuit training and his temperament. Once in office, Brown put that kind of questioning to work, trying to bring new ideas to state government. And how do you get new ideas? Well, you bring in new people. We put two
3: women in the cabinet.
2: Women, Latinos, gay people. In his 1975 interview with KQED, Brown talked about flexing one of the most direct powers a governor has, appointments.
0: Blacks for major departments in every agency.
2: Futurists, scientists, philosophers, and writers. Legal activists, public interest lawyers. Brown was the first governor who set out to make government and the judiciary look more like the changing face of California. On his legislative agenda, Brown focused on an issue where he felt only he could make a difference, labor rights for farm workers. It was an issue Brown says resonated with him in a deep way, and for a long time. It had pageantry. Nuns and priests and volunteers, food caravans, rallies at the state capitol. Marches along the road with banners to Brown it was California's version of the civil rights movement. That's why I liked the movement. it's, it, it's you know it's like being a missionary or something. The United Farm Workers led a great boycott that captured the attention of the entire nation and brought fame to their leader, Cesar Chavez. He was a romantic figure, very interesting, very charismatic. But all that romance ended at the doors of the state capitol. Growers, the owners of massive farms in California, still had huge political power, and they used it to block any new protections for farm workers. In California,
0: they were not covered by workers' compensation or unemployment insurance benefits. This is all through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and California was and
2: is a huge agricultural state. Howard Berman would go on to spend decades in Congress. In the early 70s, he was a state assemblyman from Los Angeles who tried year after year to legalize unions for farm workers. We thought this was a a wrong that
0: had to be righted. For us, this is what uh, universal health care is
2: today for uh, others. But under the previous governor, Ronald Reagan, Berman couldn't get the idea over the hump. This was not something Ronald Reagan was going to
0: uh, support or pursue. He had tremendous support from the agricultural grower community.
2: And Berman says many Democrats were also hesitant to support farmworker rights. Because in terms of political
0: force, the growers, even with the uh, birth and the development of the United Farm Workers Union, the growers were just a much more politically powerful bloc.
2: But Jerry Brown's presence in the governor's office and his commitment to the issue made Assembly Speaker Leo McCarthy think this time could be different.
1: It is 50-50
0: because the governor has been willing to uh, put his feet into the boiling water uh, of the farm labor controversy. Uh, Were it not for his involvement, I would say the chance of passage of any bill was about
2: 25 percent. Jerry Brown saw an issue where change would not happen, but for him. Two nights a week, starting at six o'clock, all the players
0: would arrive.
2: Gray Davis, California's future governor, was Brown's chief of staff at the time. In the spring of 1975, he played a key role in the farm labor negotiations. Cesar Chavez and and his supporters, uh, the
0: Teamsters and their supporters, farmers and their supporters, Uh, some of the retailers like uh, 7-Eleven and their supporters, and they would all be positioned in different offices. And Jerry would literally shuttle from office to office.
2: It wasn't easy, given all the powerful farm interests involved and Cesar Chavez's own skepticism. Yeah, Chavez actually wasn't sure himself that unionizing would be more effective than boycotts and strikes, which up until then had been pretty successful.
5: We can't compromise on the whole question of strikes and boycotts. You know, we'd be out of our minds if we did that. we got to give the strikers a, a right to vote. Brown's bill won't, won't take care of that.
2: Leroy Chatfield was on the governor's negotiating team. He joined Brown after years with the UFW. Chatfield remembers the negotiations were still in the balance as the clock neared midnight on May 6th.
1: When we had the final meeting in the governor's office with all of the growers and their attorneys and labor leaders and, oh my gosh, waiting to hear from Cesar Chavez whether he was going to accept the legislation.
2: Chavez was in Canada working on a boycott north of the border.
1: And he came on the speakerphone, and it was just he and Jerry talking.
2: Brown asked Chavez if he would give the bill his blessing.
1: And uh, there was this very lengthy pause. And Caesar said, yes, he would accept it on one condition, that no changes were to be made in the legislation during the legislative process.
2: You got to understand, in Sacramento, bills usually go through tons of changes before they reach the finish line. A bill making it through the entire legislative process with no changes, that's a pretty rare bird. But according to Brown, so was his investment in this issue. I don't think any
3: governor before or since Has spent the amount of time that I spent on that bill.
2: Brown was going all in, so there was a lot riding on bringing the bill home. With Brown's full political weight behind it, the bill made it through both houses with no changes. And on June 4, 1975, Brown signed the California Agricultural Labor Relations Act into law. It was the first collective bargaining law for farm workers in American history. Leroy Chatfield believes Brown was looking beyond just helping farm workers. I believe that Jerry
1: Brown saw the future in terms of California, in terms of the participation of uh, Latino Americans, what role they were destined to play in the state.
2: Brown and his staff put in long hours and complete focus to get the farmworker bill across the finish line, but how many times can you do that?
1: The hours were horrendous. Jerry Brown was very undisciplined.
2: See, there were two sides to Brown's but-for-me lesson. There was the tunnel vision, a singular focus that allowed him to zero in on the farmworker bill, and as he tells it, lead the writing of the entire state budget by himself, Every other governor hires a finance director to do that, but Jerry Brown took it on himself. Whatever he
1: wanted to work on, that was all that was to be done. I remember being at work, uh, you know, like 10, 11, 12 at night. He's not tired at all. Well, but he has no wife. He has no family. This is what he was meant to do.
2: That go-it-alone attitude led to a workplace that sometimes was a little bit disorganized without a real coherent plan for action. Derek Shearer was an economic advisor to Brown. Here's how he described the office. Unorganized and overwhelmingly quirky and weird. And the closer you got to the governor's office, sadly, the weirder it got. Shearer went on to work in the Clinton administration and Al Gore's presidential campaign, but he quit Brown's office after less than a year. His idea about how you run a government was pretty much that he was the philosopher king and he could kind of drop into meetings and be the center of attention, but he didn't have to take seriously whom he appointed or how the government was actually run. Brown's style might have rankled some who worked for him, but the public loved the results. By the end of his first year in office, Brown's approval rating was in the high 60s. As he looked around California for the next idea that couldn't happen but for him, Brown didn't see much. But there was somewhere else Brown thought only he could make a difference.
0: If you are not thinking about a possible presidential candidacy in 1976, I'm not quite clear as to why you are being so coy on the subject of whether you will or will not allow your name to appear on private I haven't got my name on yet.
2: Brown was pressed about his presidential intentions in that 1975 interview with KQED.
3: Why try to make all your decisions ahead of time? I haven't even set my schedule for next week, let alone next year.
2: Were you bored being governor at that point? Well,
3: I found some things more interesting than others. Is that a yes? No. No,
2: That's one of those brown laughs where you can see a twinkle in his eye. Let's put it this way. He definitely seemed a bit bored by the governor's office. He felt he had taken on the issues in Sacramento that, but for him, would not have gotten done. The next set of things he wanted to tackle were bigger ideas, like investments in small-scale, energy-efficient technologies, connected by a book that was popular at the time called Small is Beautiful and figuring out how people can learn to live sustainably on planet Earth. Brown called that planetary realism. I'm not going to get these issues
3: solved at, you know, at
2: a lower level for, you know. Planetary
3: realism is hard to, to execute in Calusa County.
2: Brown felt he needed a bigger platform, you know, like the stage of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And in his typical go-it-alone fashion, he made the announcement out of the blue. Did he even warn his chief of staff, Gray Davis?
0: No, no. I had no idea he was going to do this. It was a Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock in an era when there's no internet, no email,
2: no cell phones. Brown told Davis to summon the reporters covering the Capitol. So somehow the conversation got into this
0: mode where they said, Well, hypothetically, Governor, if you were going to run for president, how would you do it? When would you do it? And then one of them said, Well, are you going to run? And he says, I guess I am. So now it's about quarter of five on a Friday afternoon, and all of a sudden the governor's announced, and we don't have one
2: staffer or anyone geared up. There was no national campaign structure, no roadmap to win the nomination. And even worse, Brown's announcement came in March. By the time he started his campaign, four months of primaries were already over. Needing a national campaign chair, Brown called on San Francisco Democrat Leo McCarthy, who was then Speaker of the State Assembly. And McCarthy turned to someone he thought might be able to help.
5: My name is Nancy Pelosi. I'm the Speaker of the House. My political relationship with Jerry Brown began in 1976. In
2: 1976, Nancy Pelosi was a Democratic Party activist, just starting her political career.
5: I said, the California primary is in June. By June will have a presidential nominee. If Jerry doesn't run sooner, there's no way that he can be that nominee.
2: But Pelosi knew that the primary rules allowed Brown to get on the ballot in her home state of Maryland.
5: So I said, I think it would be great if Jerry came to Maryland and ran. My father was mayor, my brother was mayor. We had friends with grassroots organizations.
2: So, 3,000 miles from California, Jerry Brown hit the campaign trail.
3: I hope you'll vote for me. I intend to. You do. Thank you very much.
2: He still had his view of political limits, even for the president. A
3: lot of the time is red tape. Clinking champagne glasses, uh, walking in the Rose Garden, uh, meeting with all your experts. So what does the president do? He has a chance
2: to make a few decisions. Those few decisions, particularly on the environment, is where Brown thought he alone could make a difference.
3: Now planet, spaceship, Earth, we're all going through the universe together, taken out of the same well, the same ozone layer, and we got to
2: protect it. Comments like those earned Brown the nickname Governor Moonbeam.
5: He was young, he was fresh, he was new, new and free of other, shall we say, past uh, perceptions of how things should be.
2: Pelosi recalls a rally at the University of Maryland where students were eating up Brown's message.
5: The gym was packed and jammed. People were hanging from the rafters practically, overcrowded, people outside, the rest of it. And uh, Jerry Brown got out there and he made this great speech on the, the environment. Oh, they were cheering and roaring and cheering. And then he said, um, now when you leave here, I want you to go home and place a brick in the water tank of your toilet.
3: Limit the amount of water that a toilet can consume.
5: So that you don't waste so much water.
3: From seven gallons per flush to three and a half gallons.
5: flush the crowd went crazy. They roared, roared, roared. And my brother said, I think I'm a dinosaur in politics when somebody gets this raging standing ovation for putting a brick in the toilet. But anyway, he was new and fresh and really very well received. And he won.
2: On May 18th, despite his youth and lack of national experience, or maybe because of it, Brown easily won the Maryland primary, 10 percentage points ahead of Jimmy Carter. And Brown did well in a few other states, including California, where he won the June primary. His plan was to use his delegates as leverage to win the nomination through a brokered convention.
3: Not on the first ballot. I'm not trying to do that. I just like to sneak up on the third ballot. As Carter begins to fall, I think I'll begin
2: to start moving. It didn't happen.
3: And now I've come here, after seeing our great country, to accept your nomination.
2: At the convention in New York City, Jimmy Carter easily won the Democratic nomination. In reality, Brown's campaign never really had much of a chance. He got in way too late and didn't have the kind of national infrastructure that could defeat Jimmy Carter. Nancy Pelosi's point is that Brown's run was a political victory in itself.
5: He won the campaign. He may not have won the election, but he won the campaign because many people then knew who he was, what he stood for, how he saw things in a different way.
2: Brown had used the stage of the campaign to tell Americans how he could uniquely use the power of the presidency. His go-it-alone, but-for-me approach left him at the height of his popularity in California. But the good times would not last forever. Coming up on the political mind of Jerry Brown, the eye.
3: It's not the -the run-of-the-mill politician that can grasp the true impacts of various images and issues and presentations.
2: Can Brown stay on top and deal with a political earthquake on the ballot? These people are scared. They think they're losing their homes. We asked Brown about Proposition 13 and criticism from Democrats over his enthusiastic embrace of a measure that slashed revenue. That's stupid. I had to do it, I did it. And then the night in Wisconsin where his presidential campaign careened off the rails.
4: Watching that was devastating. I'm laughing, I was crying.
2: And Brown shares his greatest regret from his first stint as governor.
3: I don't think I looked at it with the level of scrutiny that I generally
2: like to employ. I'm Scott Shaver, that's next on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown.
4: Hi there, I'm Randa Deveta from Throughline.